On behalf of Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our pastor and teacher, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study designed to help us grow in the Word. Romans chapter 3. Three months ago, we took a couple of Sundays and looked at Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Uh, looking at and asking the question, why is it that men need to be saved? Well, we're going to look this morning at verses 21 to 24 because this Sunday is communion. And I thought this would be such an appropriate passage of Scripture for this morning. So we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 24, and how it is that a man can be right with God, or how it is God is able to save man. So Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 24, if you'll follow along now as I begin, in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. From Romans chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul, uh, like a prosecuting attorney, presents overwhelming evidence which shows that all men, both Jew and Gentile, are guilty before God and deserving of nothing but his judgment. Paul said in verse 9, For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So he declared that, that all men are under sin, under the power of sin. It doesn't mean just sinning occasionally, but under the dominion of sin, enslaved to sin. And then in verses 10 to 18, he presented a 14-count indictment in the terms of the very words of God himself. And in verse 10 through 18, we read in Romans chapter 3, if you'll follow along, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is God's description of unconverted man. And after this indictment, Paul brought his case to a conclusion with the words of verses 19 and 20. And he said in verse 19, we know, and it means we absolutely know this, that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Well, who are those who are under the law? Every human being. 
Every human being is under the law of God. The Jew is under obligation to God's written law. The Gentile is under obligation to the law written upon his heart and conscience. And so all are under the law, the rest of verse 19 says, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Well, what does that mean? It means there's no defense. It means there is nothing to say. It means there is not a word to say to defend yourself. The only response is dead silence, because every mouth is stopped. There's no defense whatsoever. All men are guilty of all counts, and there is no chance for an acquittal. No mouth anywhere in the world, from the primitive tribe to the university lecture hall, will be able to raise a legitimate objection against God's judgment. Every mouth will be stopped, because every human being is guilty before God. And this is the great lesson of the first three chapters of the book of Romans. The final verdict is that the, the entire world, every unredeemed human being, stands guilty before God. I'm guilty, you're guilty, everyone, every single person, everybody in the whole world stands guilty before the holy God of heaven. And then he said in verse 20, for by, the works, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In other words, there's no salvation through keeping the keeping of God's law. Because sinful man is utterly incapable of doing so, because he's spiritually dead, and he is under the power and dominion of sin and Satan. So he has neither the ability nor the inclination within himself to obey God perfectly. All men stand guilty and condemned before a holy God with nothing but a fearful expectation of judgment and eternal wrath. And so that's the human dilemma. I mean, this is man's great problem. I mean, this is why man or why men, men and women, need to be saved. But based on what God's law requires, Salvation for people like us is impossible because we're not righteous. Even if we believe ourselves to be, we are not righteous. We do not do the good that God requires in his word. We fall far short of his perfect standard. So how then can we as sinful beings ever be made righteous in the sight of God? How? Because God cannot, and God will not overlook man's sin. God cannot and will not overlook your sin or my sin. And we have all sinned. All are under sin, and the wages or the punishment of sin is what? Death, meaning eternal separation from God in a place that is completely devoid of his love and mercy and grace, a place of eternal wrath where there will be wailing and weeping and gnashing of teeth, Jesus said. So all sin must and will be punished. But you see, if God punishes us for our sin, then we're going to be condemned to eternal punishment in hell. But all sin must be punished, otherwise God wouldn't be just. So all sin must be punished. The wages of sin is death, so that means somebody has got to die for all of that sin. And that being the case, how is God going to work this out? How can a man ever be made right with God? 
How can and, and how does God save sinners? That's the question. Well, our only hope is that the perfect righteousness that God demands from us is freely given to us. And it is. It is. God's own righteousness is offered to man in the gospel to be received by faith. And this is what Paul addresses in verses 21 to 24 as he now turns from the the sobering and depressing picture of sinful humanity in the first three chapters of Romans to to now the celebration of the salvation that is available through God's, uh, God's righteousness in Jesus Christ. And Paul first spoke of this salvation back in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, when he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so what Paul began in those two verses in chapter 1, he now picks up again in verse 21 and begins to unfold and and explain and apply the righteousness that comes by faith. And what Paul says in in this paragraph, actually it's verses 21 to 26, we're only looking at, at 21 through 24, but what Paul says in this paragraph is really the very heart of the book of Romans. I mean, this is one of the most theologically important passages in all of Scripture. And that is why Donald Gray Barnhouse said, I am convinced today, after these many years of Bible study, that these verses are the most important in the Bible. Another commentator said, this this may possibly be the most important single paragraph ever written. Another man said, Romans 3, 21 to 26 should inspire us to think deeply about the way God has arranged the salvation of his rebellious creatures. But more than that, they should, they should inspire us in a new depth of worship and devotion for all true theology should lead to doxology, that is, to praise and worship. And so how does God save sinners? Well, first of all, Paul says he does so apart from the law. Look at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The word but indicates a great contrast. In this case, it's a glorious contrast between man's total depravity and his inability to make himself right with God and God's own provision of a way to himself. And Paul says in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God. If we're going to talk about the righteousness of God, we certainly should define it. So define it. So what is the righteousness of God? Well, the righteousness of God is God's own sinless perfection in every attribute, every attitude, every behavior, and every word. And only God is inherently righteous. He is absolutely and utterly perfect in every way. He is perfectly holy without sin or imperfection. His is a divine righteousness, a a perfect righteousness. It's the righteousness demonstrated by the Lord Jesus, a righteousness that, that can fulfill God's law in utter perfection by perfectly keeping all the laws and by perfectly satisfying the law in terms of its penalty. And it's a righteousness that lasts forever. I mean, this is the perfect standard that God requires of every man. Absolute and utter perfection. Perfect holiness without sin. 
In other words, perfectly conforming to God's perfect law and his holy character. That's the standard God requires of every man. Jesus said in Matthew 5.48, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But I don't think any one of us, beginning with myself, want to stand up here this morning and say, Well, I can do that. I can keep that perfect standard that God requires. Because we can't. Not one of us. Man falls far short of God's divine standard of moral perfection. I mean, Paul has, has shown that far from being righteous before God, men and women are actually corrupt and, and therefore objects of God's just wrath and condemnation. You see, in ourselves, we are not the least bit righteous. Rather, we are corrupted by sin and in rebellion against God. And so we can't be righteous by God's standard. We can't be perfectly holy. We, we can't be without sin. We cannot perfectly conform to God's perfect law and His holy character. But to be saved, we need a perfect righteousness like that of God's. That's the standard. We need that to be saved, a righteousness that fully satisfies God's demands. And so if you and I are to be righteous, since we have no righteousness of our own, God must give us his righteousness, and he does. And this is the heart of the good news of the gospel. I mean, looking back at verse 21, Paul says that the righteousness of God has been manifested or made known apart from the law. And when Paul says it has been manifested apart from the law, he means it is apart from trying to keep the law perfectly as an attempt to be right with him. Loved ones, listen, trying to keep God's law will not get anyone into a right standing with God. It was never meant to. The law of God reveals God's perfect holy standard which only shows us how sinful we are and convicts and condemns us for our sin. Not one person who has ever lived except the Lord Jesus Christ can lay out the list of all the things required by God's law which they have done perfectly and sinlessly and therefore be declared righteous by God. Oh, some imagine they can. But the Bible says we are all, in reality, guilty as sin. No one, no one, is ever going to make it by keeping the law of God. No one can be made righteous by obedience to the law, because our obedience to it can never be perfect, and therefore can never save. And so what Paul is declaring here is that the righteousness of God that we must have to be acceptable to God is given to believers entirely apart from obedience to any law, even God's own revealed laws. It's apart from man's effort to keep a system of rules. It, it doesn't happen that way. It was never meant to happen that way. We don't gain this righteousness by things that we are able to do in our own strength and power. Listen, Paul reminded the believers in, in Galatia, saying in Galatians 2.16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, 
but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. And then in verse 21 of Galatians 2, he said, I do not set aside the grace of God, For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. To the Romans, Paul declared in chapter 3, verse 28, just a little farther down in this chapter, he said, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. You see, God holds before men the standards of his righteousness in order to demonstrate the impossibility of keeping them by human effort. Because of that inability, the law brings about wrath, God, God's judgment on man's sin. Paul said to the Galatians in Galatians 3, verses 10 and 11, he said, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. And so all of those people who, who try to get to God by, by their works, by their own self-righteousness, all they do is keep themselves under the curse of the law. Why? Well, the rest of verse Uh, 10 in Galatians 3 says, For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. It's not possible for any man or any woman to keep the law of God perfectly. James said if you fail in one part of the law, let's say you could keep all the law, but you failed in just one area. James says you're guilty of breaking it all. If you try to live by the law, you're just going to be cursed because you're going to come short of the whole law. And so Paul said in Galatians 3.11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. I mean, no man is made right with God by trying to keep the law and all of its demands or, or by doing anything else for that matter. Whether it's you know, trying to keep the law or doing good works, None of those things will ever make a man right and acceptable to God. It's not by trying to keep the law. It's not by works. Because as we learned in Ephesians, Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I mean, it couldn't be any more clear, could it? It's not by anything that we do that we are saved. It is not of ourselves. It is, rather, the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. Paul said in 2 Timothy 1.9, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. He said in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, first part of that verse, he, God, saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. According to his mercy, he saved us. And then one more verse in Philippians 3, 9, Paul says, Paul said that he wanted to be found in him or found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. 
You see, over and over and over again, the New Testament repeats the basic gospel truth that a man can never be right with God by human effort, you know, by anything that he can do in his own power. And that is just a devastating truth. That is a devastating truth to everyone who seeks to come to God and to please Him on their own terms and in their own strength, which is why the gospel is so offensive to the natural man. Being right with God can never be achieved by human effort. No keeping of the law, no works of of any kind can ever put a man or a woman in a right relationship with God. Which is why Paul says here that the righteousness of God, the divine and eternal righteousness which men must have to be made right with God has been manifested apart from the law. And he'll go on to to explain in verse 22 that that righteousness has been manifested in Jesus Christ. And so having affirmed that the righteousness of God is apart from the law, Paul makes it clear that this is not something that was unheard of in the Old Testament. This isn't something new. Look back at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although, he says, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Now the phrase, the law and the prophets, is commonly used to encompass all of God's written word in what we now call the Old Testament. In other words, Paul was not... Uh, Paul's telling us that he's, he, he was not speaking about some new kind of righteousness. I mean, this wasn't something that he had dreamed up. This, this wasn't his own invention. No, he says that the law and the prophets bore witness to it. You know, th- this divine righteousness was spoken of throughout the Old Testament. And the message of justification by faith is in the Old Testament. I mean, people in the Old Testament were saved the same way as people in the New Testament and people today. By faith. By faith. They believed God, and they knew that they were sinful. They knew they needed a Savior. They knew that all the sacrifices were types or pictures that pointed to that Savior who had to die for them. And although they didn't fully understand Christ, I mean, it was veiled to them. They didn't understand because he hadn't come. But they knew they needed a Savior and a righteousness beyond that of man's ability. And so even though they didn't know how God would would justly pass over their sins or how God would count them as righteous and acceptable, they looked forward in faith to a time when somehow God would demonstrate his righteousness. And the easiest way to show this is by looking forward just a few verses into Romans chapter 4. And here we see two examples of how the Old Testament witnessed to the fact that man could only be made right with God by faith. Look at Romans chapter 4, verse 3. And in this verse, Paul is referring to Abraham. And he quotes Genesis 15, 6. And so he says in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, For what does the Scripture say? And now he quotes Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as what? Righteousness. That's Paul's first Old Testament illustration. And then in verse 6, 
chapter 4, verse 6, he refers to David. Look at Romans 4, verse 6. Referring to David, he says, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And then in chapter 4, verse 7, he quotes Psalm 32, 1. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. And so David and Abraham, or Genesis and Psalms, witnessed to the, to the righteousness that comes by faith, even though they didn't fully know how it could come about through the life and death of Christ. And for one other example, go back, turn in your Bibles back to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 17. And in this verse, in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, the Apostle Paul quotes the prophet Habakkuk. He quotes Habakkuk 2.4. So Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, For in it, speaking of the gospel, for in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, now here's Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by, does it say works? Or by trying to keep the law? No, the righteous shall live by what? Faith. And so we have Genesis, the law. We have Psalms, the wisdom literature, and Habakkuk. So we have the entire Old Testament represented here as testifying to this great truth that the righteousness that God accepts is by faith and not by works. And so even, those, even though those in the Old Testament didn't fully know how God could be just while justifying sinners by faith, they trusted God. You know, they, they believed God. And the prophet Isaiah probably saw it more clearly than any other Old Testament writer. In Isaiah chapter 53, uh, he predicts the suffering life and substitutionary death and bodily resurrection of the servant of the Lord, who is Jesus. And he says in Isaiah 53, 11, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, speaking of Christ, so by his knowledge shall the righteous one, shall Christ, then he says, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. In Old Testament times, men and women were made right with God, not by works of the law, but by faith, receiving the righteousness of God. They looked forward to the cross, and and the, the, the substitutionary atoning death that God was going to provide, though they didn't understand it, it was all veiled to them, but they trusted God and they looked forward to that. Just like we look back to the cross and believe, they looked forward to it and believed. And so in the Old Testament, faith came. It was by faith that men received the righteousness of God. So this isn't a new teaching by Paul in the New Testament. So someone would be completely wrong to think that in the Old Testament people were saved uh, somehow differently uh, than they are, are in the New Testament. Not the case at all. And so in answer to the questions, how does God save sinners, or you know, how can a man be right with God? First of all, Paul says it's apart from the law. 
The righteousness of God that man must have to be acceptable to God is given to him entirely apart from obedience to any law and any human efforts. And this is the same thing that was taught in the Old Testament. This is the message of the entire Word of God. And God in love provides his own righteousness. And he manifests it to men who on their own could never ever be righteous. Secondly, we see in verses 22 and 23 that the righteousness we must have is acquired by faith. Notice verse 22. Paul writes, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And so that there's no misunderstanding, Paul mentions again at the beginning of verse 22 that he is speaking about the perfect, absolute righteousness of God. And he says here that it comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And Paul's point here is that the perfect saving righteousness of God not only is received apart from the work, apart from works, but it is acquired only by faith. It doesn't come by works, it comes by faith. And those two things are distinct. Works is, is something you do. It, it is effort that you put forth. Faith is something God does, and, and you believe it. You trust in it. You receive it as truth. It's, it's done by Him, and you accept that He did it, and you don't have to do anything to it. And the saving righteousness of God is only acquired by faith. And that has always been the only way of salvation as far as man's part is concerned. There has never been a, a way of salvation other than faith in the one true God. And that is, that is a theme that Paul repeats here in Romans, in Romans chapter 4, verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but trust him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And then in chapter 4, verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of Faith. Paul begins Romans chapter 5 with this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so how does a man receive the righteousness of God, this righteousness that we need? How does a man receive that? You can talk to me. Through faith, right? Through faith. I mean, three times in this paragraph, in verse 22, verse 25, and verse 26, Paul underlines the necessity of faith. Well, what is faith? We should define it. What is faith? Well, faith is the idea of trusting in, relying on, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ as one's only Savior from sin and one's only hope for heaven. Faith is not a blind leap in the dark because it's based upon the revelation of the person and work of Jesus Christ as found in the Scriptures. And we need to understand that there is nothing meritorious about faith. And that when we say that salvation is by faith, not by works, we are not substituting one kind of merit, faith, for another, works. Nor is salvation some kind of a, a cooperative thing where God contributes the cross and we contribute the faith. No, no, not at all. 
Because true saving faith is a supernatural, gracious gift of God that he produces in the heart. Again, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. And then what does he say? And this, referring to the faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of work. So that no one may boast. We can't conjure up the faith to believe. That's a gracious gift from God. Faith is a gift of God. And we are utterly and totally dependent upon God, even for the granting of saving faith, because man can never muster up such faith on his own. Never. And we must also understand that the saving faith in Jesus Christ, which the New Testament teaches, is much more than a simple affirmation of certain truths about him. You could ask someone, well, do you believe in God? Well, yes, I believe in God. Well, that doesn't mean a thing. It may, but not necessarily. Well, do you believe in Jesus? Oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Well, that may or may not mean a thing. Loved ones, remember from James, even the demons believe. The demons believe in the sense that they know and believe the truth about God and about Jesus. Remember one of the demons who possessed the man in the country of the the Gerasenes said to Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? They absolutely knew who Jesus was. They knew who God the Father was. The demons have an informed, orthodox theology. They have an intense, unquestioned belief in God's existence and God's power, and and, and so much so that it also stirs their emotions, because James said even the demons believe and tremble. But true saving faith involves more than an intellectual assent to the truth and having your emotions stirred. True saving faith is placing yourself totally in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. And saving faith always consists of three elements. Number one, the intellect. I mean, no one can think his way into heaven. But neither can he receive Christ as Lord and Savior without some comprehension of the truth. And so with the mind, you understand the gospel and the truth about Christ. So the first element of saving faith, the intellect. Secondly, the emotions. Emotionally, you are affected. I mean, you're stirred by the Spirit of God deep within your heart, and you embrace the truthfulness of the facts you've come to understand with sorrow over sin and and joy over God's love and mercy and grace. So the intellect, the emotions, but then thirdly, saving faith always consists of the exercise of the will. The sinner submits his will, his, his life to Christ, and he's trusting in him alone as the only hope of salvation. And so salvation begins from the human standpoint with the person's willful obedience and turning from the life they are living to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and to submit to him. 
As one man said, faith is the eye that looks to him, the hand that receives his free gift, the mouth that drinks the living water. Faith's only function is to receive what grace offers. And so a man is made right with God through faith. There's no other condition. Faith. By grace, through faith. No other condition for salvation. And the righteousness of God is received through faith, but specifically through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not just faith in faith, or faith as some just uh, you know, nebulous power. And we have faith in these chairs that every time we sit in them, they're going to hold us, right? So we have faith in a lot of different things, but that's not saving faith. Saving faith must have a specific object. And the specific object of saving faith is the Lord Jesus Christ. We're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. He is the embodiment of righteousness. He's the one who, by his death on the cross, revealed God's righteousness to us. You know, on the one hand, he showed us God's righteousness by the demonstration of a perfect life. And then on the other hand, he showed us God's righteousness by his death upon the cross. And Jesus Christ alone can give to us the righteousness of God, which we must have if we are ever to be right with him. And it is received through faith. It's received through faith in Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ. And then notice verse 22 says, for all who believe. For all who believe. The provision of salvation and the righteousness it brings is for all in the sense that it is offered to all, it is certainly sufficient for all, but it's only granted to those who what? Believe. Believe. It is effective only in the lives of those who receive Christ as Lord and Savior by faith. Preaching in the synagogue at Antioch in Pisidia, Paul declared in Romans 13, verses 38 and 39, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, speaking of Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Again, in, in, in his letter to the Galatians, we quoted it earlier, quoted again, Paul said, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. And Jesus said in John 6, 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. All who truly believe will be what? Saved. So, am I saying it doesn't matter how bad they are? How sinful they are? No, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how bad or sinful they are. It doesn't matter how irreligious they are. No. It doesn't matter how irreligious they are. That's not the issue. The issue is, do they believe? 
Do they have faith in Christ? Do they truly believe, no matter what their past is? You see, it doesn't matter if, uh, if in your past you, you were a, a murderer, a prostitute, a thief, a, a rapist, a homosexual, a false teacher, a, a pagan, you know, just a God-hating, Christ-cursing, hell-bound sinner, or uh, it doesn't matter if you were a church person, a moralist, you know, someone who grew up in church but is a total religious hypocrite, or anything else for that matter. It doesn't matter what your past is. If you turn to Christ and believe, you trust in Him alone for salvation, the Bible says you will be saved. So just as no one is good enough to be saved, on the other hand, no one is so evil that he cannot be saved. That's the point of verse 22. All those who believe will be saved. And notice the last part of the verse. All those who believe will be saved. Why? For there is no distinction. There is no distinction. You see, apart from Christ, we're all guilty and condemned before God, deserving only His judgment. There's no difference. I mean, we're, we're all in the same boat. We're, we're all in the same category. We were all you know, godless sinners apart from Christ. And you tell people that, and someone will go, well, now, hold on just a minute. <laughs> you know, wait, wait a minute. I'm a very moral person. Well, you, you, you may very well be. But first of all, being moral isn't just a matter of outwardly being moral. It also involves the thoughts. But you may say that you're a very moral person. Well, I'm going to tell you this. You might be moral, but apart from Christ, you're standing before God is no different than a drug addict, a prostitute, or a rapist. In other words, you're just as lost. You're just as guilty before God. And they go, whoa, whoa, no, wait a minute. No, no waiting, nothing. That's right. That's the truth. But someone will say, well, look, I'm a, I'm a good person. I've been good my whole life. And no one debates the fact that men and women do things that are relatively good, but nothing good that will make them acceptable to God. So someone will say, well, I'm a, I'm a good person. You know, hey, I mean, crying out loud, I belong to the service clubs. I give my money to the, to the poor. You know, take my used clothes down to Goodwill. I, you know, I, I work hard. I'm a good provider. I love my wife. I love my kids. You know, so I'm just basically a good person. No. Before God, before people, you may be a very good person, but before God, apart from Christ, you're in the same boat as any other Christ-rejecting, hell-bound sinner. And that's very hard for people to understand and even harder for them to accept. But that's what it says. Everyone apart from Christ is equally sinful and rejected by God, just as everyone who is in Christ is equally righteous and accepted by him. There is no distinction among those who are saved because there is no distinction among those who are lost. There is no distinction, Paul said. And then he qualifies that even further in verse 23. Notice. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yeah, but. No, no yeah, buts. For all. And what does the word all mean? All. That's exactly what it means. No exception. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Any human being on the face of the earth who comes short of the glory of God is in the same boat as everybody else. And we have all sinned, Paul said, and fall short. And falling short means being last or inferior. So every human being has sinned and comes in last as far as the glory of God is concerned. Everybody is in the same hopeless and helpless condition. We may think that we're more righteous than other people. Oh, I don't do those things. I've never done those things. And we think we're more righteous than other people. But other people aren't the standard. God's perfect, holy righteousness is the standard. And so compared to the ultimate standard of God, we all fall short. We fall miserably short. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's interesting to me that, that here in the midst of what would seem to be the climactic point in his presentation of the gospel, that Paul returns to the theme that he's been expounding in the first three chapters, that all men are guilty before the judgment seat of God. And you know why he does so, I believe? I believe he does so because he knows that most people doubt they're truly as sinful as the Bible says they are. I mean, you might be sitting here right now thinking, well, I wasn't that sinful. Yes, you were. We all were. So Paul does this because he knows that most people doubt they're truly as sinful as the Bible says they are. Oh, they, I mean, people might be willing to make some general concessions like, well, pff, I mean, hey, I know I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. But not many people are willing to admit that they're sinners. That deep down inside they are really flawed and proud and selfish and self-centered, rebellious and sinful and therefore separated from God, deserving of His divine wrath and in need of what the Bible calls salvation. You see, the Word of God is wonderfully and also painfully realistic. And it tells us the truth about ourselves. You know, it's painfully realistic. It's like looking in one of those magnifying mirrors that you ladies use to put on your makeup. I looked in Barbara's one time, scared me to death. <laughs> Pores on my nose look like bomb craters. Why you would ever look into that thing, I don't know. But that mirror is painfully realistic. Well, the Word of God is wonderfully and painfully realistic as well. And it pulls no punches. It tells us the truth about ourselves. Why? Because God's desire is that all men be saved. You see, Paul realizes that the gospel is meaningless unless a person really understands the depth of their sin and their guilt before God. I mean, look, it would be absolutely pointless to talk about getting right with God until we realize that man is not right with God. I mean, there's no use in sharing the, the good news of the gospel with someone unless that person knows how desperately they need to be saved. Because without that deep sense of need, a gospel presentation is just a waste of time. Because look, if you don't think you're sick, you won't go to the doctor or take the medicine. We have to accept the Bible's diagnosis that we're sinners 
and on our way to eternal hell before we will welcome the cure of God's mercy and grace in Christ. That's why in sharing the gospel, it always begins with God, not with man. It begins with God, and it begins with the bad news. Because unless you understand the bad news about how sinful we are, and that we've sinned against a holy God, and we, we stand before him condemned, and we're on our way to an eternal hell, until you understand that, You will neither desire nor appreciate the grace and mercy of God in Christ. And so Paul, in the midst of his gospel presentation, uh, returns to his theme of sin. And at first you want to say, you know, Paul, I mean seriously. Paul, you, you covered all this at the, end of at the end of the first chapter. You covered it in the second chapter, through most of the third chapter. Why don't you just move on, Paul? But again, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, knows that unless people understand how truly guilty they are before God, they will never understand or appreciate what Jesus Christ has done for them. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this is why our only hope is that God will find a way to give us the righteousness he requires freely without the, need of, without the need for a single iota of merit on our part because we have nothing that uh, no merit to offer to God. And God has done just that. Look at verse 24, where Paul tells us we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What a glorious truth is contained in that verse. I mean, first of all, Paul says we are justified by his grace. To justify doesn't mean to make someone righteous, to make them righteous. It simply means to declare them to be righteous. It's a forensic or a legal term that means to obtain the verdict of acquittal or, or innocent. One man defined, defined it uh, this way. Justification is pronouncing one to be just and treating him accordingly on the ground that demands the demands of the law have been satisfied concerning him. So justification would be if you stood before the judge in court and uh, guilty as sin, but he said to you, you're just. You're justified. No, no more charges against you. Uh, you've received an acquittal. You're, you're justified in the sight of the court. That's what God does to sinner. All those who come to faith in Christ, he declares them to be just. Declares them to be righteous. And this word justify is, is passive in the original language. It's passive. See, what does that mean? Well, it means that this is something that God does to us, not something that we do for ourselves. Justification is not a process. Rather, it's a judicial action. Now, the process of becoming righteous in character and behavior, practically speaking, that's, that's sanctification. And that follows justification, or that follows the judicial act of God declaring us to be righteous. And so we're justified, Paul says, by his grace. 
And of course, grace is God's unmerited favor shown to those who deserve nothing but his wrath. It is completely unmerited. God justifies sinners who deserve his wrath by his his grace as a gift, Paul says. And the single word translated here as gift means freely. So he's telling us we are justified without paying for it. We are justified without cost. It is completely free. And that is terrific news if you are uh, the guilty sinner who is declared innocent freely because of grace. But quite frankly, it doesn't seem right, does it? I mean, if an earthly judge declares a guilty murderer not guilty, and in addition awards him a healthy judgment and then says, I wanted to give him what he didn't deserve, we would say, what are you doing? That's completely unjust. So, how can God be just when he declares guilty sinners to be justified when they don't deserve it? Well, it has nothing to do with what we deserve. Because we don't deserve anything but God's wrath. Paul says that we are justified by his grace as a gift. It's by grace. It's a gift. It comes to us freely through the redemption, he says, that is in Christ Jesus. That is such incredibly good news. In Christ, we have redemption. I mean, these are very important words because they tell us that at the heart of the gospel is the truth that there is no salvation at all apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, Paul's statement, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, tells us that we can never make ourselves Christians. This redemption is in Christ Jesus. And so if if you're still thinking in terms of making yourself a Christian or, or trying to be a Christian... Then, then that is a clear indicator that you're on the wrong road. And as long as you're on that road, you'll never become a Christian. If you think you can make yourself a Christian, you'll never become a Christian. The first thing that we have to realize and understand is that we cannot save ourselves. Loved ones, no man has ever made himself a Christian and no one can ever make themselves a Christian. Because at the heart of the gospel is the truth that there is no salvation at all apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Christianity is Christ. Listen, the Lord Jesus did not come to tell us what we have to do in order to save ourselves, did he? No, he came to save us. He came to do something for us, to to act on our behalf. And that is the, the, the very essence of the gospel. It is in him that we have salvation. The Son of Man came to what? Seek and to save that which was lost. It is Christ himself and what he has done on our behalf that comprises our salvation. I mean, our salvation, our redemption is in Christ and in Him alone. He did it. He obtained it. It is the redemption. I mean, this this is emphatic. This is not just any redemption, but this is the redemption, the great redemption, the final full redemption that was accomplished by Christ on the cross. It is the redemption. 
The great redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Well, what does the word redemption mean? Well, one commentator pointed out that we use words such as redeemer or redemption as religious terms. But when the man of the first century heard them, he immediately thought in non-religious terms. To the man of the first century, redemption brought to mind the common picture of a slave being purchased and then set free. Redemption meant release from bondage by the payment of a price. I mean, every Gentile in, in the Roman world would have thought of this when he heard the word redemption. So the word redemption is a, is a commercial term borrowed from the marketplace that, that basically means deliverance at a cost or release by payment of a price. But embedded in this word redemption in the original language is the Greek word which means ransom. Ransom. And so the imagery behind this word comes from the ancient slave market. Redemption pictures a slave hopelessly entrapped in slavery, being bought out of his bondage and set free by, by paying the necessary ransom price. And there's always a price involved in, re, in the redemption. I mean, a slave could, could purchase his own freedom if he could save or collect sufficient funds, but the price was usually something which was uh, far beyond anything a slave could ever meet. But a slave could also be set free by someone else paying the price that, that was demanded for him. He could be bought out of slavery, and that is the essence of the meaning of this term, redemption. I mean, it was a very meaningful term to the first century reader as, as there were, by some accounts, up to 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. And many of these slaves became Christians and fellowshiped in the local churches. The, the church in Rome was no doubt filled with slaves. And so redemption was a very precious thing in, in the Apostle Paul's day because it meant someone's release or deliverance was accomplished at the cost of a ransom payment. You know, Jesus told his followers that he didn't come into the world in order that they might serve him, but that he might serve them. He had come to do something for them that no one else could do, namely to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, loved ones, the, the Word of God teaches us that mankind is in bondage as a result of sin. Man is under sin, under the power of sin. You know, we're in bondage, held as slaves to sin, and we can't set ourselves free. Man cannot be righteous on his own. There, there's none righteous, no, not one. The whole world is guilty before God, accountable to God. The whole world is in a state of slavery to sin and to Satan. It's under the dominion of Satan. The Apostle John said in 1 John, the whole world lies under the power or the sway of the wicked one. We're under the sentence of death because the wages of sin is death. And so if man is going to be delivered from the sentence of death, somebody's got to pay the price. Somebody's got to redeem them, and somebody did. And that somebody is the Lord Jesus Christ. He left the glories of heaven, became a man. He was fully God and fully man at the same time, and he came into this world in order to redeem us. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. We're not just celebrating a baby born in a manger. Rather, we are celebrating the incarnation of God who came for a specific reason, and that is to save his people from their sins. He came in order to pay the ransom price that would set us free. That, that's what Paul means when he says the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. 
And the redemption is in Christ Jesus because Jesus is the ransom. He gave his life so that there could be release and deliverance. He, he paid the price to set us free from bondage, from the power of sin and the penalty of sin, the wrath of God, and one day we'll be delivered from the very presence of sin. And so for a believer to live in sin is to contradict the redemption that Christ secured for us. You know, in Christ we are saved. And what he has done to save us is that he has bought us. He has redeemed us by ransoming us, by paying the price that was necessary to set us free from the bondage of sin and death. And this redemption of ours is an existing reality. It's a, it's a present possession and experience. And there's also a future aspect of our redemption. One day we're going to be redeemed, you know, future tense from our sinful body. And that's the culmination of our salvation, known as glorification. But the finalization of, of our redemption will not occur until Jesus returns. But, but even so, right now, right now, as believers, we have redemption in Christ. Again, it's a present possession and experience. And knowing this and understanding this should absolutely, should absolutely fill our hearts with love and joy and gratitude for Christ. It should also remove any fear of judgment and fill us with, with hope beyond the grave. It, it should motivate us to live holy lives, to live for Christ who redeemed us. And if you've trusted in Christ alone as, as the payment for your sins, God wants you to know and enjoy the fact that He has redeemed you from the bondage of sin. I mean, this is what God, through Jesus Christ, has done for sinful man. You know, God in His great mercy and love provided a remedy for sin, the redeeming sacrifice of His Son. So the relationship between holy God and unregenerate sinners can be restored in and through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You may think of it. All our sin was punished on Jesus so that when we by faith believe in Him, we are justified. God declares us righteous. Our sins are forgiven. And then Christ's perfect righteousness, His perfect life is credited to our account. This is what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. This is how God Save sinners. This is how a man can be right with God. It's not by works. It's not through trying to keep the law. It's not through trying to earn anything. We could never earn it. We can never be good enough. We can never keep the law perfectly. No, we, are, we have been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so as believers, we're not left in the blackness of man's sin and rebellion in Romans chapter 1 and 2 and most of chapter 3, but rather we are brought to Romans 3.21 and the righteousness of God that is given to us by faith. That's what it means to be righteous. That's what it means to be saved. It's not what we've done. It's what God has done for us in Christ. It's all of God. It is, is all of grace from start to finish. 
And this is what the cross is all about. On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, we hope and pray this study will help you continue growing in the Word. If you've been blessed by today's message, or if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can call us at 530-547-4400. Again, 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the church website at calvarybiblepc.org. calvarybiblepc.org. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. It's your love that makes me see It's your word that comforts me By your blood we've been set